Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. This is Louisa Wilcox, and you're listening to The Grizzly Beat. And we're here today with Stephanie C., media coordinator for the Buffalo Field Campaign. Stephanie is on the front lines protecting Yellowstone's buffalo, for which there is sadly great hostility still here in Montana and among cow growers. She and other members of the Buffalo Field Campaign monitor buffalo year-round, and they bear witness to the government's mistreatment of them, such as last winter when 600 animals were killed. Stephanie, you grew up in rural Virginia in the company of horses. What drew you to the company of buffalo? Well, um, I have always kind of had a special feeling for buffalo. Um, My family um, is very very much attracted and always had high respect for native cultures and the buffalo are always part of that um, but it was when I was working in Washington DC of all places for a large uh, large nonprofit um, I learned about the, the the winter kill of 1996-97 when all the buffalo were being gunned down and slaughtered and couldn't believe that it was going on and it was very shortly after that that Mike Meese and Winona LaDuke and some others were starting to share video footage, um, footage that Mike had gotten, um, and they were appealing to other groups to help so we could try to stop this. And, you know, the organization I worked with was, you know, pretty wishy-washy about it. Um, I don't think we need to talk too much about them. But ultimately <laughs> I stayed in touch. I would signed up. For, to get BFC's updates from the field, and I just stayed in touch with them. I would put out their newsletters, get video footage, and share with my friends. And, and a few years after that, there was a bunch of organizations that decided they did want to help BFC, and so there was going to be some solidarity work, try to, try to help raise money for BFC, get, get the word out, make sure BFC stayed on the front lines. And one of the organizations, the organization I worked for was one of those groups. And the first thing we did, kind of silly, but the first thing we did was a, a table, do an information table at an environmentalist mm-hmm. journalist conference in Baltimore, Maryland, and the group I was with sent me out, and BFC sent out Dan Brister, and Dan and I hit it off, and the following year I came to visit, and we went into Yellowstone to go backpacking, and I met buffalo, and it was the first time I had ever met wild buffalo, and I looked into their eyes, and that was that was pretty much it. I remember shedding tears and just feeling completely committed. And the following winter, I moved to Montana and have been here ever since. Wow. That's a great story. Well, Stephanie, one of the very weird things about the management of buffalo is how stigmatized they are. Uh, and ostensibly because they carry the disease brucellosis, which, of course, theoretically could be transmitted to cattle, although that's never occurred, and the chances are so remote that it will occur, given how the disease is transmitted. Buffalo are the only wildlife species to be managed as livestock, 
And you and others at Buffalo Field Campaign are asking that Buffalo be managed as elk, which is a very reasonable request. What do you think the root problem of buffalo management is? You know, I think the root problem goes back a few hundred years, um, and that is, it basically stems down to control. I mean, when European invaders arrived here, um, they wanted this land, and they wanted the indigenous people out of the way, and the one of the ways that they attempted to do that was to um, kill the buffalo because the indigenous people were so dependent and lived so symbiotically with the buffalo that to destroy the buffalo they would be able to try to control the native people. Um, and so I think it, it's, it boils down to control. And when you look at this issue from all the different perspectives that, you know, whether it's brucellosis or, or whether it's, you know, um, just big animals on the landscape, um, what it really comes down to is grass. It's all about the grass and who gets to eat it. The cattlemen who started to fill up the landscape with cows and their own presence after the buffalo have been, had been nearly annihilated wanted to maintain that, that control over the grasslands. And so um, as wild buffalo in Yellowstone, the last remnant population of wild buffalo, as they started to rebound and leave the borders that man had set up for them within Yellowstone National Park, the cattle industry was very afraid of that, and they're still very afraid of that. Because wild bison, unlike a lot of other animals, they have the ability to restore themselves. We simply need to get out of the way. Um, mm. And because of their migratory nature, they cross those boundaries, they cross those fences, and um, the livestock industry wants to keep them contained because they don't want um, to have competition for their cattle for grass. They feel that the grass mm. is theirs for their industry, and they don't want to share it with the native bovine. Um, and so they've come up with all these other ways to kind of smokescreen the real issue, and all those other excuses are really being put to the test. Brucellosis is the, the prime example. It's full of holes, that argument. And, you know, the truth is is that it's about the grass and who gets to eat it. Mm. So Buffalo Field Campaign is really different from other conservation efforts because it was founded with the tribes, and it relied a lot on one woman, Rosalie Little Thunder, a Lakota Sioux. Can, can you describe how she and tribal people shape this work? Um, well, that's kind of, I don't want to generalize anybody or any one mm. nation that way, but, um, mm. you know, Rosalie, sure. the, to the Lakota people and to a lot of the Plains tribes, the buffalo and the people are one. They're relatives. There's no, you can't separate them. And so to learn, when, when Mike sent out all that footage, he sent out footage to various tribal leaders, and, and Rosalie responded and responded with force. She came out to Yellowstone, and she saw a lot of what was going on, and she saw this as a, a repetition of history, you know, the same genocidal situation, which is exactly what it, what it is. And so, you know, um, I, I can't speak for, for Native people individually or um, collectively as various nations, but mm. it's 
I mean, it's, I don't know how you'd compare it. You, I guess so, I'm not a Christian either, so I can't say, but it's like if someone was going around destroying churches or burning churches or, you know, it's something that's so personal and so intricately interwoven into the culture and spirituality and wants day-to-day life of Native people um, that, that we had to do something. There was so, something had to be done. Um, this last herd was was still there. Native people are still here, and co- together we're going to fight like hell to make sure that that both continue. Um, and so, from Buffalo Field Campaign's perspective, I mean, obviously we we as an organization, as in the individuals within the organization, cherish wild buffalo for who they are and for for what their role is on this planet and also we honor the the indigenous wisdom and relationship with the buffalo and so we aim to do what we can with learning from native people about the buffalo and what is the appropriate way um to to live um coexist in a respectful way with the buffalo and so we um we're learning all the time. Um, I'm kind of getting stuck on this this one because it is so it's so intense. There's so much um, of an intricate relationship here that I don't think anyone within white culture can really grasp as much. No matter how much history we read, no matter how much there's there's something so profound in that relationship um and so you know buffalo field campaign we're we're following we're trying to follow the lead of the people who have this this millennia long um relationship with these sacred beings and we're trying to do the best that we can for the buffalo for native people to help to restore um not only the buffalo, but the relationship that the Indian people and the buffalo um, have with each other. And it's a a sacred path. And so there's a lot that we do and don't do. Um, The way we walk the earth, um, we try to be respectful in in all ways, um, not only to the buffalo themselves, but to the native people that whose relatives these are. Does that answer your question at all? Yeah, and it, it, it is a path. I mean, you speak about a path, and it is a lifestyle path for all of you uh, who choose to work with Buffalo Field Campaign, and you live together in communal, communally in remote cabins in West Yellowstone and some in Gardner now. Um, and the Buffalo Field Campaign attracts volunteers from all over the country and indeed the world. And, of course, winters up in West Yellowstone are bitter cold, and you burn immense amounts of wood to stay warm. (laughs) And people are keeping track of buffalo on skis and frigid temperatures, some with very little experience in such conditions. So what is living in that environment like for you? It's awesome. I love it. (laughs) I think most of us that are there, we thrive in that. You know, I mean, bring on the next ice age, really. But no, it's it's challenging, but it's wonderful, and it's I don't, those of us that do this, I don't think any of us would want to live any other way. Um, 
you know, we get to go out into those formidable temperatures, into that deep, deep snow on negative 40 days and, and stand with the buffalo who are just living in it. You know, they don't get to go home and, and change into to warm clothes and sit by a hot fire. Um, they're out in their, in their element all the time. And it's, it's a gift every day to be able to be on the landscape with the buffalo like that. And it's a unique thing in this entire country, and I would say on this continent in regards to buffalo, because Yellowstone is, is the only place where we have this wild migratory herd left. And it's not as if we're just driving a road and there's buffalo behind fences and, oh, they're over there, see the buffalo. It's like, no, we're walking in their trails. We're following their tracks. We're smelling them as we get close to a herd. We're picking up their shedded hair on the ground or following the tracks that they've left through the hair that's caught in the pine cones of the trees. And it's an invigorating thing, and it helps us realize that we're living with them on their home, that it helps us with um, the perception of, of our place in, in this world, um, which is as a co-inhabitant with them. Um, they humble us, and they are our greatest teachers. As you mentioned, we do live in community, and buffalo in herds live in community. And so we we try our best to look to them to see how they interact with each other and try to emulate that within our own community. And certainly it's challenging. I mean, it's, it's, it's always challenging to, to live with a lot of people, and especially when there's a constant turnover with new volunteers coming all the time. But it's also truly invigorating, and we learned so much. And the buffalo have been one of our greatest teachers in helping us learn how to live together um, cohesively in a manner that is respectful to the earth, respectful to each other, respectful to um, other other non-human nations. And so it's as much heartbreak as we do witness, and that also intensifies the heartbreak, getting to live with these animals in this mm. manner. Um, it's we are truly blessed, and we also have this little saying that, you know, the buffalo, they call the people. They call their people to come and stand in their defense, and ultimately it is them that are teaching us how to save us from ourselves rather than us really coming in to save the buffalo. The buffalo have it all figured out. They're <laughs> waiting very patiently for us to learn and to reawaken and, and to catch up. Yeah. So, as media coordinator, Stephanie, you write the weekly updates, uh, the weekly news updates for Buffalo Field Campaign, and, and some of them are angry, and some of them are <laughs> sweet, and at least one that I read uh, was incredibly sad after you watched a mother buffalo standing over her baby who couldn't get oh. up, and days later, she still wouldn't leave its body. Yeah. So, what's it like to be the voice week after week after week? for wild buffalo um it's it's an honor and it's a challenge sometimes and it it's all of our voices collected it just kind of gets filtered through me and then also through dan brister who who does a wonderful job of editing um but it's 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 something that i take very seriously 
because we are trying to be a voice for the buffalo. I mean, the, boy, the buffalo have their own voice. It's just most people can't hear it or refuse to hear it. And so to be able to try to tell their story from what we witness, from our perspective, and try to share it as, as if it was, you know, their perspective, that's a, it's a, an honorable place to be, and it's a very... Um, it's challenging at times because sometimes, you know, there's things that you want to say that you are pretty certain that the buffalo are telling you that maybe isn't going to go over so well with some people. And so you kind of have to, it's weird, you, you kind of have to be careful sometimes with the things that you say and how you say them because the buffalo may be, may be screaming something very clearly, and yet we have to try to convey it in a way that um, will reach a lot of humans and, and help them understand where the buffalo are coming from. But um, ultimately, it's, it's an honor to do this, and it never gets old. Um, yeah, just sometimes the buffalo channel through you, and other times the volunteers pour right through you. And so it's a collective effort all the time. Um, mm. So here's maybe one of those examples. I don't know. So last March, Yellowstone Park conducted a media tour of its op operations uh, to capture 75 buffalo solely because Buffalo Field Campaign had legally challenged government attempts to keep its handling of buffalo secret. And you and members of the press witnessed mother and baby buffalo being jabbed and prodded and forced into a squeeze chute, after most of which were sent to slaughter. So what was that experience like for you? Well, first I have to say that the, the, the legal challenge came with the help. We, it's not Buffalo Field Campaign that's actually doing the lawsuit. It's my oh. my journalist friend Christopher Ketchum and myself are being represented by the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And oh, okay. um, in response to that lawsuit, the Yellowstone National Park issued a media tour, an access tour, because access is what we're asking for. So mm -hmm. this media tour, Mike, Mike Meese and I went on um, for Buffalo Field Campaign, and I can't, it's really hard to describe what we saw. I mean, we were standing there watching what we've come to, to feel as our relatives also, definitely our friends, go through what can only be described as a buffalo's hell or a buffalo's worst nightmare. And to stand there and document it and be there and hearing the sounds that the buffalo make and not doing something to stop it was really difficult but we knew we know how important it is to document these things so that we can show other people what is taking place in there inside Yellowstone National Park these are the guys supposedly in green wearing buffalo on their badges running these poor animals through the gauntlet and it was awful. I think Mike and I are probably going to have nightmares for the rest of our lives. I mean, he's seen he's seen a lot in the early days. He got to see a lot of really horrible things too, which which was a catalyst for a lot of the the video uh, documenting, showing people what was taking place. But this particular tour, we were given the most access we've ever had before, and it was very difficult, but it was very important and. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about even, but you could, if you wanted to, you could look on our uh, YouTube channel, uh, BFC Media, and look at a video called The Buffalo Trap, and that's from this past tour, and it's very difficult to watch, but it, it's really important for people to see what's happening, and so we're hoping that the more people that see what's taking place in there, coupled with all of the the science that's coming up and just the political and public sentiment changes and the landscape changes, we can help eventually shut this trap down. That's the ultimate goal. And also something else that came from being at the trap, at the last IBMP interagency bison management plan meeting in April, a Umatilla gentleman asked, <clears throat> Excuse me. A Umatilla gentleman asked the agencies, "Were there any injuries or fatalities at the trap this year?" And the microphone was handed over to Rick Wallen, who's Yellowstone's bison biologist, and he simply said, "No." And we were able to call them out on that. That was a blatant lie. I had happened to have my laptop with me at that meeting that day. So when I went up to give my public comments, I pulled up my photos of uh, calves, yearlings, almost yearlings, who had had their horns torn off during the squeeze shoot operation. And, you know, there's numerous things that we didn't get to see even being on the media tour. But because we were allowed to be there, we were allowed to catch the government in a lie and and tell the public that, yes, you were just lied to by Yellowstone National Park and show them the actual truth. And otherwise, if we hadn't been able to be there, everyone would have just had to take the word of no and accept that as the truth. And, in fact, it was a lie. So there's a very strong importance. Um, that was just one underlying piece of it that um, – we need to have access to that trap. We need to see what's going on in there. The public is paying for this. The buffalo are paying with their lives. And, I mean, this is on public land, public money. We have a right to be in there and documenting what's happening. Absolutely. But, Stephanie, you, you also recently experienced a big win, uh, and a new policy allows Buffalo to live hassle-free year-round on Horse Butte near West Yellowstone in Montana for the very first time. And you watched, well, not for the very first time, but for a long time, uh, for the first time for a long time in history, and you watched Mother Buffalo raising their babies peacefully and not having to run from helicopters or cop cars with lights flashing and sirens blaring. What do you think the key ingredients of success were for the new Horse Butte arrangement? To quote Brock Evans, endless pressure, endlessly applied. I mean, we have been fighting for horse butte for almost 20 years, and the the science, the, the landscape situations, the public support, everything pointed to this makes perfect sense. All, uh, obviously, it's the buffalo's land to begin with, but all of their excuses it, were we were breaking them down, breaking them down, breaking them down. And it just took years and years of that kind of pressure and years and years of showing how ridiculous and how harmful these operations were, and not to mention costly, if economics is your thing. Um, it, it was just uh, it was a no-brainer to have this decision come to, 
to play in the grand scheme of things, but politically, this was ginormous, especially in Montana. We actually got a, there's a crack in the dam now, you know, and we're still, (laughs) we're still, it's still swirling around in our heads, like how significant this win is. Um, We're still trying to learn how to to celebrate because we've been so used to being on call and just, ready for these war zone types of events day after day after day, year after year after year. And, um, and so all of a sudden there's been this ceasefire and Buffalo are, they're being Buffalo and the people (laughs) that live around the village are grinning from ear to ear. They're loving it. Um, everyone's loving it. And just to be able to know that, those buffalo right there on the public land, on the private land, wherever, wherever, they're they're okay now. We got right. we got this for them, and so many had to die to get to this point, and mm-hmm. we have to always apologize to those buffalo that we weren't able to save. And now this first new generation of calves, for the most part, none of them will hopefully ever have to experience those brutal activities ever again. And so we look at those little guys and we're like, you know, welcome to the world. And it's a true welcome this time. It's not being born and then having a helicopter chasing you for 15 miles. This is, you know, they get to just be buffalo and it's the most beautiful thing. And we're still, like I said, we're still trying to wrap our heads around how great this is. It's a huge victory. On the landscape terms, it seems very small, and it is very small because, you know, Buffalo covered most of North America. But to get Horse Butte and those surrounding lands is huge, and it's only the beginning. We're not going to stop Well, congratulations, and and here's to many more, and uh, many more landscapes open to Buffalo. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. So back to your other love, or one of your other loves, horses, uh, a habit uh, that you've been able to pick back up here in Montana. And you're working with a a trainer, a cowboy, uh, no less, Um, different than uh, the sorts you've had to deal with at the Department of Livestock, uh, Buck Branneman. So what have horses taught you? And are there different lessons than those that Buffalo have taught you? Yeah, you know, um, horses... Teaching and learning from horses is a lot like teaching and learning from from children. And although children that are almost your elders in most ways, um, <laughs> horses have taught me and continue to teach me um, how to be a better human being, um, how to um, enter into um, relationship with my friends and coworkers and well, all my coworkers are my friends, but you know, to, to to how to be with other people. It's very, very similar because with horses, they mirror, they mirror you. What you give to them, they give back to you. And mm. if you screw it up, they're going to let you know. And they're very honest with with how they are, and that's much different from most people. But it is a lesson in how you can be a better person um, with other people. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't. Uh, they they basically challenge you to be the best human being that you can be, which is 
constantly a challenge because we're always striving to be better and none of us are ever going to reach you know perfection but it's the journey itself it's the day-to-day kind of challenges and rewards that happen in in those horse and human relationships that really do reflect a lot of what goes on in your own personal human relationships and so they've been a huge gift to me as far as trying to become a better person and seeing things in a clearer perspective being a more congruent human being and being clear and direct learning how to set boundaries, um, learning when to say, you know, no, or learning when to let it go, you know. it's mm. they're, they're amazing creatures. And, and as far as Buck Brannaman goes, um, yeah, he's, he's definitely my horsey guru. I wish I could be with him uh, every day that I'm not with the buffalo and, and playing with horses with him. But I do get to check in with him when he, when he comes to town in Montana as his his old stomping grounds, so it's kind of like his homecoming when, when he gives clinics around here, and, and I had one opportunity uh, to bring my own mare, Starlet, uh, to, to a, do a clinic with him, and I, as much as I love him, it was definitely, <laughs> I'd call it horsemanship boot camp, because mm. he's tough, I mean, he's serious, and but he's mm. he speaks horse like nobody else, and if people listen to him, we joke to the DOL all the time like you guys because they they're so sloppy and they're so cruel not just to the buffalo Mm. but to their own horses and so we'll Mm. joke with them sometimes you guys need to take check in with Buck Branneman your horse will thank you but Mm. they're you know like Buck says he's he's a pagan cowboy he's like none of these guys that have been doing this same old stuff are interested in in learning a better way but it would help everyone's horses to to check in with him, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, Stephanie, you recently submitted comments on the government's proposal to strip federal protections from Yellowstone grizzly bears. And obviously, buffalo and bears have long been connected with bears being so widely dependent on buffalo for food. And Yellowstone is the only place left where both are still functioning parts of the ecosystem. Can you share your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it was a huge honor. Buffalo Field Campaign was very excited to to help grizzly bears in this way. And we look to you and to Dave Matson, and we a lot of our work words came from you guys, um, as well as Doug Peacock and Hey Bear Goal Tribal Coalition. Um, you know, the grizzly bears. We we live with grizzly bears, especially in the spring when they're awake and the buffalo are migrating through there. We come across fresh grizz tracks, fresh sign. We see bears from time to time in the areas that we patrol. And it's such an awesome feeling when you come across fresh grizzly bear tracks. It's like, oh, they were going the way we're going. I guess we're going to probably had a different way today. Um, but it's really exciting. But, you know, grizzly bears depend on winter kill buffalo and elk, of course, when they wake up in the springtime as the first good, huge source of protein. And so when there's more buffalo on a larger landscape, that's going to be a benefit to grizzly bears. And so we'd like to figure out ways where grizzly bears and buffalo can help each other out in gaining more ground and in increasing their population and being a healthier um, symbiotic relationship. One thing that the grizzly bears did to help buffalo is 
in the first few years of hazing, a lot of that hazing was done in the wintertime. And so the agencies never considered the impact to grizzly bears because they considered, well, they're hibernating, so it's not going to bother them. Well, as the years went by, more and more hazing became, um, started happening in the springtime, and that was right when grizzly bears were starting to wake up. And, you know, the Department of Livestock would fly their helicopter just just above tree line, low down into the water, all over the habitat where we see grizzly bear sign, where we know that bears are living. Yeah. And so um, the Alliance for the Wild Rockies ended up, filing a lawsuit using BFC as expert witnesses to try to ground the helicopter because of not only the impact that it had on buffalo, but the impact that it had on federally protected grizzly bears. And ultimately, we ended up losing the actual lawsuit, but changes came because the USDA APHIS, Animal and Health Plant Inspection yeah. Service, which is they are the dark, dark lords of the universe on the buffalo issue. <laughs> but they were <laughs> they were funding the DOL's helicopter and in response to this lawsuit said that they would no longer do that until and unless grizzly bears were removed from the endangered species list. So the helicopter was essentially grounded. The DOL can't pay for it. They need the federal handouts to do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so grizzly bears helped ground that helicopter. We were able one time to catch um, actual grizzly bear in a buffalo herd. This bear was actually feeding on two separate buffalo carcasses while buffalo were grazing all around him. And we got footage of a helicopter coming in and disturbing this whole scene. The bear stood up on his hind legs and the area was closed and then all this other stuff fell into place, and eventually the helicopter was grounded. So, and, you know, in turn, grizzly bears need buffalo to be on the landscape because, as, as we know, with climate change, more and more of the bears' main food sources are disappearing, and the buffalo meat is becoming more and more important, which is also very dangerous for bears because there's more competition with either wolves or other bears, which is bad for cubs. Um, so it seems, and the human cause mortality is increasing with the increased need for meat. So we need to spread it out. We need more buffalo on a larger landscape. We'll help grizzly bears. It will be a benefit to, to the buffalo and the land herself. It will be a benefit to tribes who want buffalo to return in a respectful manner. Um, so all in all, I think these, these, two, these two others can help each other out and um, help heal the land together and help heal each other in the process. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie. Uh, you're listening to Stephanie C. with the Buffalo Field Campaign. Thank you so much.